need eyes to see. What are you talking about? I created the event horizon to reach the stars. But she's gone much, much farther than that. She tore a hole in our universe, gateway to another dimension. A dimension of pure chaos. Pure evil. When she crossed over, she was just a ship. But when she came back, she was alive. Look at her, Miller. Isn't she beautiful? Your beautiful ship killed its crew, Doctor. Well, now she has another crew. Now she has us. Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond, the film podcast that covers films of the 1990s as well as movies that were influenced or sequels to films of the 1990s. Subsequently, my name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website that's been around since the 1990s. It's called Quipster.net. You can find all of my written reviews there at my website. You can also find a link to my other podcast that I do that is very similar to this one, although it covers films of the 1980s, and that's called Around the World in 80s Movies. Check it all out. Quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today's film from the 1990s is going to go to 1997, and it is a sci-fi horror hybrid called Event Horizon. Event Horizon, considered kind of a cult film for a lot of people today. Some people really enjoy it. I have to say, the last time I watched it, which was back in the 1990s, I was not so enamored of it. In fact, I, I pretty much hated it at the time. But, you know, I also did not like The Shining, which this film resembles in a lot of ways, and I have come around to that film. So will I also come around to Event Horizon? I guess that awaits to be seen. Event Horizon is an R-rated film. There is strong violence in this. A lot of gore, some language, some nudity in the film. The runtime is an hour and 36 minutes. The stars include Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Neill with supporting roles going to Kathleen Quinlan, Jolie Richardson, Richard T. Jones, and a few others. Paul Anderson, known today as Paul W.S. Anderson, is the director. The screenplay is credited to Philip Eisner. Now, Event Horizon, if you study astronomy, that's the point where light falls victim to the pull of a black hole. It's kind of like the, the point of no return. And black holes, you know, in theoretical language, I guess a lot of people have theorized that they may somehow be portals to other dimensions, other universes. Obviously, there's no real proof of that, but people have envisioned maybe you can get to heaven by going through a black hole. Or in the case of this 1997 film, hell itself. The main plot of the finished film, anyway, uh, it begins in the year 2047. There's this rescue crew sent to Neptune, essentially, the orbit around Neptune, to investigate this emergency beacon that's coming from the Event Horizon. The Event Horizon is a, a prototype spaceship that mysteriously vanished seven years before. It had used this kind of new fangled gravity drive that harnesses the power of a black hole to try to condense space travel. 
Now, the mission for the rescue crew, obviously, is to recover the crew of the Event Horizon, if they are still alive, and also to salvage the Event Horizon itself. Upon arrival, the rescue crew discovers that everybody on board, unfortunately, seems to have perished within the very vast and ghostly environs. And they come to discover that they may have been victims of some sort of malevolent force that is now threatening them as the rescue crew. More to the story than that, there's a, a few layers there I'll get into to the body of the rest of this podcast. Now, screenwriter Philip Eisner, he really was the one who devised the premise for Event Horizon. Actually, back in 1992, that's when his father, he had recently died in this freak skiing accident. Something that left Eisner in his early mid-20s in shock. This numbness that he felt really started stalling any kind of forward progress in completing his four-picture contract with Largo Entertainment. Largo Entertainment, the production house owned by producer Lawrence Gordon. Eisner was spending time not writing. He was just sitting there on his couch watching movies. He happened to be a Stanley Kubrick fan in particular, and he was watching 2001 A Space Odyssey for the umpteenth time. And he noted this time out, really, this was a, a very creepy film. For a science fiction film, anyway, it seemed almost horrific in a certain respect, especially when you get to the HAL 9000 part, HAL 9000 being the AI entity that was created, obviously, by humans to try to assist in space exploration. HAL traps the astronauts into this very nightmarish existence through its unemotional logical conclusions. This seemed almost like a haunted house, but... Even worse than that, though, because it was in space. And in space, there's no chance to escape, unlike a regular haunted house. These characters on the spaceship have to confront their fears head on if they're going to survive. There's no way around it. Now, Eisner also next watched Stanley Kubrick's film The Shining. And he did observe that there are many similarities to 2001, especially the way it uses terror really propelled by bleak isolation. In fact, The Shining could have easily just been set in space instead of at this hotel in the mountains. And that thought gave Eisner his next idea, his epiphany. What if astronauts experience a haunted spaceship that produces evil hallucinations representing their worst fears and regrets, very similar to The Shining, resulting in madness where they begin tearing at each other? Eisner pitched his premise to the execs at Largo. The Shining set on a spaceship. Largo execs, they wanted to know more. They were very intrigued, but he said, look, I have yet to write this story. That was just a concept that came to mind. They commissioned it. Eisner did have a relatively easy time getting back into the groove, writing his first 30 pages. But Eventually, he did succumb yet again to severe writer's block. He was really starting to get hit hard by that loneliness from his father's demise and his absence in his life anymore. Marilee Wyman, she was the manager of Largo's New York office. She would periodically check in with Eisner, trying to help him refocus his efforts and get him through the whole thing, which he eventually did. As with 2001 and The Shining, Eisner wanted to avoid showing a lot of aliens or monsters. Those lose their ability to fright once they're seen. 
in fact, the xenomorph in Alien was kind of a rare exception to showing the alien. By continuously changing its nature, audiences had no idea what to expect was going to happen next. Eisner did want a similar ever-changing evil for Event Horizon. The Event Horizon the ship would violate all laws of physics, jumping into this dimension where it was never supposed to exist, and that jump, as well as experiencing things that humans were never meant to experience, affect their minds in unexpected ways and cause them to go mad. The monsters are the inner demons that the crew brings with them, their terror from experiencing a nightmare from which they can never wake. In concocting a story, Eisner drew inspiration from tales of ghost ships like the Legend of the Flying Dutchman, as well as the account, the real-life account of the Mary Celeste. Additional influences came from films that were set in some sort of bad place, like an evil place from which there's no easy escape, such as 1959's The Haunting, 1956's Forbidden Planet. Video game fans have also claimed over many years after seeing Event Horizon that it does bear striking similarities with this video game called Warhammer 40,000 or 40K, specifically in its use of faster-than-light warp travel that goes into demonic dimensions. In recent years, Eisner actually did acknowledge that he was an avid fan of the Warhammer game, and he played it often, and he cannot deny that it at least had a subconscious influence on what appears on the screen. On the science fiction front, Eisner also admired James Cameron's The Abyss, especially in the way that it used its nemesis character, Lieutenant Coffey. Lieutenant Coffey is a Navy SEAL who starts going insane after experiencing the effects of high-pressure nervous syndrome, and he begins attacking the other characters through his severe paranoia, and all of this accentuated by the scares of being in this inescapable and very hostile environment of the bottom of the ocean. Eisner's character, he thought, should go mad from the effects of this experimental form of space travel. In October of 1992, about six or seven months later, Eisner finally delivered his completed draft. Largo execs felt very strongly about Eisner's script. They attached a director immediately, but that director initially attached eventually lost the gig because his most recent project had fared poorly at the box office. Unfortunately, shortly after that, Lawrence Gordon soon left Largo, his production company. After leaving, he sued for the rights to the properties that he had developed for Largo, leaving Event Horizon in limbo, at least until settlement, which eventually happened three years later. Gordon did get to keep ownership of those properties, including Event Horizon, and his new venture called Golar Productions, took on Event Horizon and began shopping it around to various studios. It did eventually land at Universal, but Universal had some production problems with it and then later put it into Turnaround, where it would be eventually picked up by Paramount Pictures for a one-picture deal with Golar. Around this time in 1995, Paul Anderson was just finishing up post-production on Mortal Kombat. He already had a project lined up after Mortal Kombat, which was this $50 million adaptation of Alfred Bester's 1956 science fiction novel called The Stars, My Destination. Coincidentally, if you're a huge fan of Event Horizon, you know that The Stars, My Destination was the working title for Event Horizon. That film was going to be produced by Bernd Eichinger from this draft script from David Geiler and William Wisher. But that project, which was going to afford Anderson $1.5 million to direct, 
ended up getting stalled at 20th Century Fox. It wasn't getting the green light. So back to the drawing board, at least for now, Paul Anderson started looking at these other scripts that he started getting flooded with after the quite surprise success of Mortal Kombat. Anderson also was offered the Mortal Kombat sequel, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, but he turned it down because he didn't want to spend the next year doing exactly what he had done the year before, and he had all of these offers to contend with that were probably a better career choice. He did decline one of the major projects, Marvel's The X-Men. He wasn't keen to do another PG-13 property right away either. He wanted to do something a little bit more daring. Discussions did occur with... 20th Century Fox about perhaps directing Alien 4, which would become Alien Resurrection sometime later, but that fell apart because there were scheduling conflicts that were going on, and that left him with the choice of his top two favorite scripts that he read. Warner Brothers had one that was pretty much ready to go, this sci-fi actioner called Soldier, and Paramount offered, of course, that science fiction horror hybrid known as Event Horizon. Event Horizon had come to Anderson's attention when he was out to lunch. Along with his friend and producer, Jeremy Bolt, they were having lunch with director William Friedkin, as well as his wife, Paramount head Sherry Lansing. And during their conversation, Anderson lauded William Friedkin for the work that he did on The Exorcist. And he mused, he wondered why a masterpiece horror film like The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby or even The Omen Movies that really stick with you, that scare you for years afterward, just are not made anymore. Friedkin recommended that Anderson should read the script at that time for Event Horizon that was in development at Paramount. Sherry Lansing sent Anderson a script copy to read, and it completely surprised Anderson. It begins like a standard science fiction genre piece, but it kept defying Anderson's expectations. He read it entirely in one sitting, something he rarely did, because he was so intrigued to learn how it would eventually resolve. Now, as high as he was on Event Horizon, Anderson did opt for the more ready-to-go soldier because it had Western-tinged qualities. Westerns happen to be a genre that Paul Anderson really loves, but they weren't really made into feature films very often anymore, unless you were Clint Eastwood or something like that. And this was as close as he was probably ever going to get to directing the Western, so he took it on. But eventually, Soldier's slated star, Kurt Russell, announced that he was going to take a year off. He postponed the production for a year to finish up his current commitments, as well as to spend time with his family, his children, while he got into good enough physical shape for the part in Soldier. That gave Anderson a window of time a year and he didn't want to wait around so he went back to Event Horizon he told Paramount he'd like to direct Event Horizon and get it made before he had to go to his soldier shoot in September of 1997 he pitched his vision for what Event Horizon could be it should be the next genre phenomenon very similar to Alien or Blade Runner if he did it right it would be visually distinct from anything that was currently out there or had come out before Paramount was sold on Anderson directing Event Horizon, and they gave their green light while Anderson secured Jeremy Bolt back as line producer. Anderson wanted Event Horizon to harken back to those older, those theme-oriented science fiction films that he loved and inspired him to be a filmmaker. Films like Solaris and Soylent Green and The Omega Man and Logan's Run, movies that seemed to have died out in the 1980s in favor of more action-oriented fare that involved brawny physiques and non-stop quipping. 
He also wanted to emulate those older horror films like the ones that he talked about with uh, Friedkin. Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, The Omen. Dark, very deliberate stories, deliberately paced. Things that were supplanted in the 1980s by very cheap and meaningless slasher B-movies. The one exception that Anderson had in his mind was Clive Barker's Hellraiser back in 1987, as well as its sequels. Anderson drew actually a lot of inspiration from Hellraiser through its Lovecraftian depictions of cross-dimensional demons that exist in our mundane existence. He saw Event Horizon possibly as a clash between humanity's scientific future and this reckoning with this ancient supernatural force that we foolishly dismissed as myth. He started envisioning Event Horizon as more of a supernatural horror film rather than a straight science fiction film. Anderson put together his production team and had them view the David Fincher film called Seven, as well as Adrian Lin's Jacob's Ladder. They watched it several times before filming for inspiration for how that they should shock audiences without revealing too much of the story and also maintaining throughout this pervasive sense of dread. The viewer's mind should imagine things gorier than they would if they held back on some of that graphicness. Anderson also liked the use of religious elements in Seven. It gave a lot of weight to that story, as well as the madman's twisted sense of morality that springs him into doing horrific things. Anderson determined that he should escalate a lot of the religious imagery into Event Horizon so that the film would feel almost like a trip into hell itself. Now, Eisner's original script had the ship's crew going mad primarily from the effects of this space-warping black hole-producing gravity drive. Eisner's supposition for them going mad and attacking each other was that humans really would not be able to handle the distortion of that space-time continuum and their reality would start getting shaped by their darkest fantasies as they start going mad off-kilter. But Paramount started sending representatives to nearby malls to try to ask average people if they understood about black holes. And they found that very few, if any, of the people that they met could adequately explain what a black hole was. So Paramount did urge Anderson to try to de-emphasize the science of black holes from the script and to shade more toward horror explanations which was music to Anderson's ears. That's what he wanted to do. Anderson managed to secure Seven's screenwriter, Andrew Kevin Walker, to come in and do an uncredited script polish to try to bolster the elements of darkness, to increase kind of the yuck factors, as well as to inject religious ambiguity that the black hole might have opened up a portal to hell. Anderson then teamed up with Eisner, to try to revise this Walker polish, to try to keep the dialogue consistent with his established characterizations, as well as to continue to match the production designs as they came forward. In Eisner's original screenplay, the ship is also revealed to have been infested with these tentacled, mollusk-like aliens from this other dimension it went to, kind of an homage to the horror of H.P. Lovecraft, but Anderson wanted to cut those out. He wanted to avoid any alien presence because he viewed Ridley Scott's Alien as a perfect film, and he didn't want to be accused that Event Horizon would be just an alien knockoff. He preferred the Kubrickian formula of not showing any aliens, but always feeling their presence, just like 2001 A Space Odyssey, and that would preserve ambiguity as to the source of the menace as in supernatural horror films like The Shining and The Haunting, films that stayed with audiences even afterward because they still don't know exactly what's causing the frights, which keeps them feeling fear. The fear of the unknown propels the fear in a horror film. 
Eisner also had to scale up the script to try to match this production because his original script that he wrote, he envisioned it as a $5 million picture for an independent studio. It was going to be a low-budget effort. So it needed to be reimagined for this new $50 million big studio picture. Anderson keyed in on Eisner's description of the event horizon seeming like a cathedral. In fact, Dr. Weir, one of the main characters in the film, calls it a cathedral to science. Also, one of the other characters named Stark in the script also claimed that the ship seemed somehow alive, and he wanted to go with that notion. Anderson envisioned a gothic set design and a story that would tap into these religious themes he wanted to bring in, while the ship, having jumped literally into hell, could be construed as becoming sentient and maybe tainted with the, with the evil that it found there, and that fit in better with its notion that it is a haunted house in space. The ship here is the, the real villain of the film. It would lure people to enter it and then feed off of their misery because it is inherently evil. Anderson toyed with uh, actually having an ending that would reveal that the devil himself was the one who was taking over the ship. But then he rationalized that any depiction of the devil would probably be a letdown to audiences. There should really be no monsters except those harbored monsters within the characters themselves, the ones that get projected and manifested from their worst nightmares into these hallucinations, or perhaps perhaps those are realities that they're projecting. Scares should remain potent because the audience is not able to fully grasp the cause of their madness. Anderson, in his concept, wanted the event horizon to evoke 2001 A Space Odyssey in its design until the lights turn off, after which it becomes a different vibe images of Torquemada's torture chamber or Dante's Inferno. So they designed the ship by plugging blueprints of the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris into this computer and then making a lot of modifications to try to give the event horizon a look that they dubbed techno-medieval. The gothic-looking cruciform ship's engines were designed using the Notre Dame towers turned on their side. The antenna dishes on top of the ship resemble the gargoyles of the cathedral, and the stained glass windows provide the motif for the ship's interiors. Brickwork from the cathedral is changed to metallic for the purpose of the ship, while additional art design begins drawing influence from the works of Hieronymus Bosch, as well as Peter Bruegel, the Elder, plus the photography of Joel Peter Witkin. For the flashback footage of what happened to the Event Horizon's original crew, books on sadomasochism were consulted to try to denote kind of the the mix of pain and pleasure of the horrific orgy of murders that eventually erupts on that ship. Cinematographer Adrian Biddle came in. He wanted very sickly fluorescent colors to accentuate the look of the ship that would really unsettle audiences throughout and keep them ill at ease. Visual effects were spearheaded by Richard Urisich, who initially was hired by Anderson for Soldier, but he decided to retain his services when that was postponed for Event Horizon. Urisich conceded to sign on because Anderson was very open to letting him experiment on something he wanted to do for a long time, zero-gravity techniques that he wanted to try. But most of the zero-gravity sequences that he was promised were eventually replaced. They decided to give the characters magnetic boots because all of the wire work involved, as well as the choreography involved for zero-gravity scenes, took far too long to, to do for this film that happened to be on a very tight schedule. They, were, they would probably still be making the film today, Anderson muses, if they decided to do the whole thing in zero-gravity. 
All of these time and budgetary constraints also bled into other parts getting nixed, including Eisner's opening sequence, establishing these characters going on an unrelated mission called the Lucky Strike before we find them going to the event horizon. All of those requisite character development moments would have to be abbreviated and put into the event horizon mission itself. Now, given a wide latitude by Paramount, Anderson started pushing the envelope of gore and body horror more and more into this dark and twisted, nightmarish display to try to keep viewers constantly unsettled. He wanted viewers to experience in his film the same kind of unease and misdirection that he felt while he was reading the script the first time. Anderson deliberately wanted actors specifically to be cast against type because viewers should think the scientist would be the hero by the end. They want, he wanted them to predict that, as well as the captain being the heavy. It would be set up that way through the casting. But by the end of the film, it would be the opposite. And as far as the casting goes, Paramount felt, given the amount of money that they were going to spend on sets and, and special effects, that the story was going to be the main selling point anyway. So Anderson should probably avoid having to pay for costly major stars. He should just try to secure what he felt was were going to be the best actors to achieve his goals. Now, because they were shooting with anamorphic lenses, Anderson wanted enormous sets to try to avoid the event horizon looking claustrophobic and cheap. So the interiors were enormous. The vast emptiness of the ship was very crucial to the story, very much like the Overlook was to The Shining. So the massive sets would be constructed at London's Pinewood Studios. It was across nine entire sound stages, and that made it Pinewood's third largest production they had ever had to that date after Batman and The Fifth Element, which were huge films. After Gary Sinise and Jeremy Irons passed on playing the brilliant but troubled scientist Dr. William Weir, they eventually landed Sam Neill. Weir is a character that is plagued by memories of his deceased wife, his wife committed suicide in a bathtub that was changed from Eisner's original screenplay concept of her dying of cancer. Where was the person who designed the Event Horizon? He designed it as a colossal cathedral, a place of worship for science rather than God, though. However, Weir has not been very forthcoming about the nature of his physics-defying creation that was built to reach distant stars using faster-than-light travel, bending space and time itself. Weir's invention is this gravity drive that's on board the Event Horizon, designed through his revolutionary scientific techniques to try to create black holes, bend the fabric of space itself to transport the ship instantly into cross-dimensional destinations. After Amy Brenneman initially joined on and then left to pursue a role on the stage, Kathleen Quinlan eventually took the part of medical technician Peters. She's this mother who leaves behind her disabled child back on Earth to take the job. Quinlan liked that this was a rare, strong female role in science fiction, but she also identified with Peters as a mother herself of a young boy that she leaves behind in America to make this film here in England. Longtime science fiction fan Lawrence Fishburne was sought for Miller, the captain of the rescue ship, the Lewis and Clark, Although the script conceived of Miller more of a Texas cowboy, Anderson was a very huge fan of Lawrence Fishburne, and he pursued him immediately for that role. Fishburne, in addition to being a science fiction fan and had been looking for years for something to do in science fiction, he liked the script's unpredictability and the fact that Miller, who's haunted by the memory of leaving a colleague behind in a burning ship, performs a very honorable act in the film's climax and becomes kind of the hero. 
Fishburne prepared a lot of notes about what his character would do for each scene. Some of his scenes just had the notes N-A-R, which meant no acting required, something where he only had to react naturally to whatever was happening. And that promoted the need for more practical effects rather than CG, something that Urasich actually encouraged. He wanted to do practical whenever possible. Even though he was a special effects guru, he felt things should be practical whenever possible and CG only when necessary. Period piece regular, Jolie Richardson. She was cast over all of the others that auditioned for the role of Stark because Richardson happened to adeptly deliver, unlike the others, scientific jargon very convincingly, despite not knowing at all what she was actually saying. And Anderson really liked the fact that Richardson would be doing here the kind of film that she'd never been in before. People would not expect or even know what they were going to get out of her performance. Anderson filled the supporting cast with a lot of actors that he had worked with and trusted and admired before, Sean Pertwee, as well as Jason Isaacs. And despite the grimness of the overall film, Anderson still had a great time directing Event Horizon, especially in the way he concocted a lot of these torturous things for the actors to do. The actors themselves found being on the set to be oppressive, and they felt being inside every day gave them kind of a, a cabin fever, and Anderson felt that that feeling would work well to put the, the actors in the right frame of mind for what they were delivering for the film. So as far as the marketing of the film, normally horror films like this would be released sometime near Halloween, September, October, rather than in the broader appeal of the blockbusters of summer. However, Paramount's Titanic, its July release, ended up getting pushed to winter because of massive production issues. So Paramount felt that they needed to get something out into theaters during the summer, and they pressed Anderson to get Event Horizon ready for an August release to fill that hole in their schedule. Anderson, being young and somewhat naive, he rationalized that it would be probably a good thing. He was going to be released ahead of Fall's science fiction horror flicks that were spearheaded by releases like Starship Troopers and Alien Resurrection, although he didn't know that they would also eventually get postponed. Anderson agreed to do this accelerated post-production schedule. It was going to be a narrow four weeks rather than the customary 15 that was usually needed to edit and fine-tune a picture of this magnitude, and that meant he would have to rush to complete all facets of post-production simultaneously instead of doing it in stages. Unfortunately, by the time Anderson did complete Event Horizon, his first cut, the first test screening of Anderson's 130-minute cut with Paramount's brass did not go well, not at all. They were caught completely off guard by the level of gore and graphic body horror that Anderson had injected into the picture that they had no idea about. And the reason why they didn't have any idea, these visions of hell sequences that Anderson put into the film, cannibalism, dismemberments, disembowelings, he was shooting all of those on weekends with Vadim Jean, and they were tagged as second unit because they were weekend shoots. And second unit often gets ignored by studios. They hired amputees to, so that the dismemberment scenes would look as realistic as possible. They hired porn actors to come in and simulate these sadomasochistic sex scenes, these sex murders. Paramount expressed deep concerns because their studio was synonymous with the Star Trek series in science fiction. They didn't want their reputation among the sci-fi fans sullied by releasing this bloody orgy of despair in space. 
They pushed it toward a test audience of everyday filmgoers, and those filmgoers also agreed. They were so put off by the lengthy and very intense, these maggot-infested, gory sequences that at a certain point, they just ceased to enjoy the movie anymore, and they just sat there in either boredom or just didn't want to deal with what was going on on the screen. These audiences also despised that the worst things seemed to happen to the most likable characters And it just seemed to Paramount that Anderson had simply gone too far in this grisly direction that the audience was not prepared to go. It needed to get reeled in in editing. Believing Event Horizon just would not have the legs to stand up to blockbuster competition at the box office, and that it would easily garner in its current state an NC-17 rating, Paramount ordered Anderson to go back and do a less-is-more approach. Under Paramount Chair Sherry Lansing's directive, this 130-minute film was trimmed down to try to get as close to 90 minutes as possible. That would increase the theatrical showings. For the first two weeks, the studio could take the highest percentage of the profits during those first two weeks and get additional screenings in. Paramount even suggested maybe Anderson should try to see if he could get a PG-13 cut out of it, which he assured them was absolutely not possible. So on the chopping block were the film's obviously most gory moments. Those were greatly trimmed down. The character development of some of the side characters and their visions was trimmed out. Lengthy fight scenes were cut down to just what was necessary. And a lot of the expansive mood-setting sequences that really brought out the feeling of loneliness as well as the emptiness of space and that cavernous event horizon itself. Anderson here had to make hasty compromises to keep the story coherent. He had to add text to provide missing context. He also added additional jump scares to try to gin up some of the frights in place of some of the missing scares, the gore content. And by the end, Anderson felt maybe he chopped out more than he really should have. He went too far the other direction to try to please Paramount. And maybe he, in the editing phase, crippled the film's overall impact because the narrative became much more confusing and the pacing just seemed to be off due to the rush edit, and test audiences also concurred. They still did not like the finished product. When it was released, Event Horizon debuted at number four at the box office before it eventually escaped in the top ten. Two weeks later, it garnered only $26 million, about half the overall shooting budget. Although a flop in its time, it has gained significant fans over time, especially when it hit DVD. People could watch it over and over. The film has garnered that small, that growing cult following among horror and science fiction fans, especially those who like the merging of the two. As far as whether I've come around on the film, I will tell you a little bit. I actually do admire what they were trying to do here. I initially dismissed this as just kind of a gore fest and it didn't make a lot of sense. And if you follow my reviews for any length of time, you know that I greatly emphasize storytelling as the main thing that I enjoy about films. Gratuitous gore, gratuitous sex, gratuitous anything does not work on me if it comes at the expense of story. And I felt that Event Horizon, at least at the time when I saw it, was really trying to push gore. And the story just became lost underneath all of the elaborate sets and costumes and weird visual displays to the point where I didn't even understand what was going on. In my revisitation, I did enjoy it a little bit more. And I enjoyed it more for its ambiguity as well. But I do think that the storytelling elements are still too far missing, probably because it got lost a lot in some of the edits. The, I mean, if you chop out 30 minutes of a film, 
you're going to lose something, especially in terms of pacing and reveals and other things that are necessary to put together a film. Unfortunately, we probably are not going to see that film because, you know, Paramount did go back and tell Anderson they wanted him to put together his director's cut for DVD and eventually Blu-ray, but the excise material could not be found. Eventually, sometime later, they did discover some of the footage in this Transylvanian salt mine, but it had greatly degraded being there, and it was too damaged to salvage. They found a VHS copy that had some additional footage, but also in a degraded fashion. It just wasn't going to be used to put together some of the scenes you can actually see in the extras of the DVD, but not all of it is found, and what is found is in bad shape, and you will see that if you do check that out. While I do admire its attempt to subvert genre tropes, I do think that ultimately Event Horizon does embrace those tropes a little too heavily, not to be constantly reminded of at least a dozen other films, a dozen better films, obviously Alien and Solaris, and you know, you can go on and on. Some of the credibility of this story strains early. Once you get the explanation that the Event Horizon makes a fold in space, forming this artificially created black hole to travel through. And from what's left, Anderson concentrates a little too much on his virtuoso directorial style at the expense of exposition. I mean, even what's kept in this film seems to be excessive. I mean, going for 360 degree rotating shots and and things like that, it's razzle dazzle. It doesn't really push the story forward. The characters continuously seem superficial. The suspense is kept at bay for the most part. Set design favors mood here over believability. It just really looks like it's it's opting to look cool instead of trying to embrace basic practicality. I do think that Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Neill acquit themselves very well to lend an air of credibility to the piece, but even they can't overcome some of the inherent blandness of their sketchy characterizations. Credibility, suspension of disbelief might be absent there for science fiction heads that don't necessarily like horror. But I do think that if you like horror, you'll be much more forgiving because you are used to watching films that don't explain that much. They just envelop you with its atmosphere and its pervasive gore. And you will find, if you're a horror movie fan especially, even if you like science fiction and horror, this might be more of a limited appeal to audiences that enjoy grotesque images, flashing lights, lots of noise, in their science fiction and horror. So I think that there is a audience and there is a strong audience for this film, but it's very much limited to sci-fi horror hybrids, especially ones that tend to lean a little bit more toward horror in terms of explaining what's going on rather than science. So if you're in that camp, you're probably going to get a recommendation. But for me, as somebody who has to recommend films to a broader audience, I would say that Event Horizon is more, for me, a two-star Film Two stars meaning it's lacking something vital that would that keeps it from being a film I could recommend to most people. And that thing that I think is lacking here is adequate development of those characters, the story, the pacing of that story, and eventually the reveals. So if you like aesthetic horror, if you like aesthetic science fiction, you're going to like this film a lot more than I did. But for me, who concentrates more on the way that it tells its story, there's not enough here to keep me as interested. It's very intriguing in spots. I am certainly very captivated by the concepts behind the film, but not enough of that is in the story itself to keep me interested in what eventually gets revealed. And that's why, personally, I only rate it two stars. 
out of four, even though I know that's probably going to anger a lot of the big fans that are listening to my podcast, expecting a rave review for a personal favorite. So I'm sorry, I apologize to you, but you know, everybody has their own tastes. And in fact, one of the reasons why cult films become so beloved is because most people don't like those films except for a select few. In recent years, it was announced that Event Horizon would be kind of brought back for like a, a, a sequel series for television. Actually, I should say not for television, for streaming on the Amazon Prime service. Paramount and Adam Wingard were uniting to try to produce this series. Once announced, it, there hasn't been a lot of word as to whether it's being made. I've tried to look and see if that is still going forward. And even now, as of August of 2023, I really don't know if they're still planning to make that into a series. I mean, it's been four years since it was announced, so I'm starting to get a little bit discouraged, but I hope at some point, you know, given the intriguing premise, they could develop it into something really exceptional with more time and energy to expand into characterizations and story. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this look back at Event Horizon. Even if you didn't care for my personal opinions about the film, I do hope that you at least enjoyed this look at the making of the film and it enlightened you in some form or fashion about the film in a way that you might not have gotten reading random trivia here and there on the Internet. So if you have your own thoughts on Event Horizon and why you think it's a masterpiece or even a much better film than Two Stars, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website, that's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. There are links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. I do encourage you to write me. Uh, you can find my email there, and that way I could respond at, more at length to any of your opinions or queries. As far as what I'm going to be doing on the next episode, well, we're going to continue that vibe with another science fiction film has some horror elements to it and it has a black hole and it also had a very troubled production so there are a lot of parallels to Event Horizon but it's made one year later Barry Levinson's Sphere and I have a lot to say about that film especially about its production and I will cover that in full on the next episode so I hope you're looking forward to that until then thank you everyone for listening as we travel to the 90s and beyond. <laughs>